Hey, this is Angel Donovan with episode 81 of Dating Skills Podcast, and it's a mega episode, especially for those of you who have read The Game by Neil Strauss. And if you haven't read it, go read it, because not only is it a hilariously fun read, it'll get you up to speed on what all the pickup artist stuff is about. On the show today, we have one of the main characters from the game, a guy who has also been behind some of the big innovations in ideas on attraction that came out of the pickup artist community, and one of the most senior pickup artists, having got into this over 15 years ago. That's a long time. I'm talking about Swingcat, who Neil Strauss named Grimble when he wrote the game. He was using his artistic license a little bit there, but it's in fact the same guy. Anyone who has studied pickup artistry for a while has most probably used some ideas that originated from Josh, and that's his real name, Josh. It's been over 10 years since Josh did any public interview. So as you can imagine, a lot has changed for him. He's still active, really active, and has many adventures to talk about, but that's not what we're gonna focus on in this interview. In this two hour mega episode, we're gonna talk about the beginnings of the game with some inside previously untold stories on the early days of the pickup artist community. So for any fans of the pickup artist community or of the game, then it's pretty amusing. There's some pretty interesting tidbits in there uh, featuring people like David D'Angelo, also known as Evan Pagan, of course, and Neil Strauss. We also talk about some of Josh's earliest innovations like prizing and push and pull theories which you may have seen are a part of his real-world seduction course, which we've been recommending as a solid course on attraction for quite a few years now. Yeah, it's pretty good. And then we spend more time on how he's changed what he does over the years and how he's been working on that the last five years to put it into his teachings and his courses. He calls his latest stuff Masculine Polarity, and he just released a course on it. He gave us a pre-release copy, and we've just published our review on it. It's good. It's advanced material. Actually, there's quite a bit of science in it. So it's not like the easiest, lightest reading, but he goes into basically the changes that he's made over the last 10 years in how he approaches things. And we think in particular, this course will help guys who have got stuck on using routines and lines. So it's kind of funny because it's the stuff that was put into the game. If you got stuck on the stuff in the game, and we think this new course was like helpful to help develop your own personality and be more natural and spontaneous and not rely on lines all the time. To get today's show notes with more information about Swingcat and links to his new courses, his old courses, to everyone and everything else we spoke about in this interview, the transcript of the interview and the MP3 download, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and select this episode from the list. Or just go to datingskillsreview.com and click on podcast and you'll see it there. Let's have a bit of fun with this episode's question. A little known fact is that I was featured in the game, as was our editor, Jackson Hunter. So we were in the book. For today's question, just answer what is the number of the page where Neil Strauss wrote about us in the game? What's the page number where we are featured in the book, The Game? Put your answer in the show comments and I'll pick the first one to get the right answer to give the free access to the Dating Skills Academy, our exclusive member's site with rapid learning tool. What is the number of the page where Neil Strauss wrote about us in the game? What's the page number where we are featured in the book, The Game? Put your answer in the show comments and I'll pick the first one to get the right answer to give 
the free access to the Dating Skills Academy, our exclusive members site with rapid learning tools I developed to help you develop your dating, sex and relationship skills as fast as possible. Skills Academy, our exclusive members site with rapid learning tools I developed to help you develop your dating, sex and relationship skills as fast as possible. Now let's journey back into the game and find out how it's changed these past 15 years. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned, chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Hey, Josh, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. It's good to be here. Man, you've been in this game, or often it's called a game, of course, and I'm sure you're going to describe it as a bit more than that uh, when we get into it. You've been really one of the main characters since this whole game thing came out. How did it affect your life when the book, The Game, came out? Is it something that came up? Did people start recognizing you? I mean, at that point, I'm not sure if you were still around in forums or anything, but it'd be interesting to know how that affected you. Well, for one thing I'll say is the game coming out, I think, was one of the best things that happened to me and happened to a lot of other people because can material stop working? Uh-huh. And, and that kind of pushed me and it pushed a lot of other people to learn to read the situation instead of rely on these lines. And later on, I'll talk about a little bit about how I, I really think relying on them kind of erodes your sensitivity to women and what's going on in the situation. Great, man. I, you know what I wanted to do is get a bit of your history because I'm not sure if everyone knows who you are and has heard all about your story. If they've read the game, they've got kind of one version of that story. But most of that story is actually about Neil and what he's doing. But you were around at that time. In fact, you were around before Neil Strauss came along. So it'd be great to hear, I mean, as far as I understand. So anyway, I'm not exactly sure myself. So it'd be really great to hear, like, you know, how did you get into all of this? What's your story? Because it was so long ago and things were so different back then. Oh, the mysteries of Swing Cats. So back in <laughs> the 90s, and I forget if I was on break from college or this was back in high school. It was so long ago. But there was this special on the news about this, this nerdy looking guy that taught men how to seduce women. And his top student was this guy named uh, Housewife Banging Cunningham. And I was sitting there with my mom and my sister watching this special, and they were saying, God, those guys are fucking losers. Who would pay money to go to a workshop like that? And I was like, yeah, you know, that really is pathetic. And as soon as the special was over, I scurried to my computer and I looked up this guy, Ross Jeffries, and I wanted to buy his course, but I didn't. At that time, I was a poor kid, you know, college student or high school. I can't remember. So I couldn't afford his course, but I bought his book and I tried a couple of the lines on some girl I was on a date with. And they actually seemed to work somewhat. And then I kind of forgot about it. And uh, maybe a year or two went by and uh, wasn't doing that great with women. I, there was a night where I was so desperate that I ended up having sex with this girl who was probably whiter than she was tall. 
And in the morning, I was half crushed by her enormous torso and half depressed that I had hit an all-time low. And I finally ponied up the cash and I bought Ross Jeffrey's speed seduction course. And okay, was that the original one? The original one. They didn't even come on CDs. They came on these cassette tapes. And I spent literally, I think it was right before uh, winter break in college. And I spent like literally hours and hours and hours memorizing all of the patterns. And I remember that New Year's, I went out and I did what I usually do. I was drunk and I made out with four or five girls. And then I thought on the next girl, I'm going to use Ross as he had something called the Discovery Channel pattern. And I did the pattern on her and she was absolutely disgusted with me. <laughs> I kind of assumed his stuff didn't really work. And then I got some sort of email or letter from him that he had this online community, this email list that you could join and you could meet up with other guys who are involved in this stuff. So I got sucked into hanging out with these guys. And um, which year was this, man? Was this in? Uh... God, this must have been like 96 or 97, maybe a little later, pretty early on. Maybe it was a bit later. Uh, it's been so many years. But I started hanging out with these guys and we're still very skeptical. And no one in the group actually talked to women. They would, they would sit around and they would talk a lot of theory. I, I think I was the only one who actually had the nerve to, although it was painful, I would actually do the, uh, the walk-up. And I think um, the one pickup line Ross Jeffries had back then was you were supposed to go up to girls and say, hello, my name is Manny the Martian. What's your favorite flavored bowling ball? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just found it utterly humiliating. So it was very difficult for me to me to do it, but I would, I would actually do it. Um, I was the only one who approached girls. I wasn't sure the stuff worked. And then someone introduced me to something called handwriting analysis. And you'd basically go up to a girl and analyze her handwriting. And while you're analyzing her handwriting, you would do these patterns on her. And so that worked okay. I got some numbers with that stuff and mm. I got better with the, the speed seduction stuff. And yeah. eventually found myself as kind of Ross's right-hand man. Right. So the patterns are basically the speed seduction. That It's all about patterning. Is that correct? It's all about patterning. You're basically putting women into uh, hypnotic or sexual trance. Yeah. Did you find that worked? It does put them into hypnotic trance? Or what was your feeling of that at the time? I felt that it did work. And I wasn't sure in the beginning if... It was that I had confidence in these patterns and that's what was working for me. You know, I had something to say and I believed in the patterns or if they were actually doing something for the women, because early on, I was very skeptical that uh, hypnosis worked until a friend of mine who was actually in the game put me into a hypnotic trance and I lost my equilibrium and hit the ground. And then I said, OK, maybe there's maybe there's something to this stuff. So that's how I first started, really got into a lot of the Ross Jeffrey stuff. And then me and this other guy developed something that was in the game called the October Man sequence. And, you know, that's something I don't necessarily use anymore. I think it is effective, but I also think that there's easier ways to, uh, to get women. I don't think you need to go through all those mental contortions to succeed with women and get the outcome you want. I think it's a lot simpler than that. So you're referring to intense, I think, with the October Man sequence. Yes, I think in the game, he's a two-timer, Yeah, it's right? funny because a lot of people don't know this, but the names that Neil Strauss put in the game, the characters even aren't necessarily one person. Sometimes they're two people. It's a bit mixed up. So yeah, two-timer was intense, and that's what we used to call him back then. 
And you, Grimble was Swing Cat, was you, Josh. Right. Was there anyone mixed up in your character or was it just purely you? Yeah, yeah. He combined uh, me and a um, guy a lot of people might not know named Craig Clemens. Oh, right. Of course. And actually, well, Craig Clemens, is, he's been on a reality TV show just recently. Oh, yeah. I saw yeah, it. Yeah. I saw it. it was- reality television star right he's been on quite a few at this point yeah that's right yeah that's right yeah so it's funny because i'd forgotten all about him i remember seeing him back in the day and then um he came up in his show anyway getting sidetracked here so this is character so then what happened so I, I was really involved in the the ross jeffrey stuff and uh at this point i was still living in northern california and i had largely lost interest in hanging out with with the community at that point i was just hanging out with college friends and stuff like that there were a couple guys i talked to from time to time and there was this kid from uc santa barbara who wanted to hang out with me and meet me because he heard that i was the one other guy within the speed seduction world who would approach women so he was very excited to hang out with me so this this is very primitive days very few people approach they would talk a lot of theory a lot of these guys didn't go to bars. They would mostly kind of hang out in bookstores and coffee shops and maybe work up the courage to start up a conversation with a girl. There's nothing wrong with that. There just wasn't that many people approaching. So this guy got in touch with me and we hung out and right away we did not get along. He was very strong about that speed seduction was full of shit. And he told me about this guy he had read about online who went by the name of Mystery. Uh, He told me that this guy didn't use patterns. He used something called routines. And I was interested. And we went out and I asked to see for him to show me what some of the mystery method stuff was. And it was a disaster of an evening. (laughs) I think he went up to some girls. And uh, what was that old line? He asked them if they knew that Elvis died. Oh, I remember that line. I never understood that line. (laughs) I never did either. And then he went into something that I I think it was on the old ASF called the Mr. Smooth routine. So he's talking to this girl or we were talking to this group of people. And one of the girls who was an attorney, he told her that she was an intelligent woman and he grabbed her breasts. And then he grabbed her, his crotch and said that he was an intelligent man and started humping her and said that they should have an intelligent conversation. <laughs> and that, this escalated to almost a fight um, yeah. <laughs> between him, him and the girls. And I had to calm everyone down. So I didn't have high hopes for this mystery guy. Right. And yeah. I think at that point, he also introduced me to another guy. I think you call it Siphonify or something like that. It's hypnotized backwards. That character eventually became David D'Angelo. Right. And all of the advice, all of their, both David D'Angelo and Mystery, I was getting through this guy. So it was all hearsay. And it sounded just god awful. So eventually, when I moved down to LA, this guy named Chris Powells did a review of Mystery's workshop. And so I was curious to see what Mystery was about. So I emailed this guy, Chris Powell's, and um, I think I had just moved back from college. I was staying at my mom's place at the time, and Chris Powell's came out to my place in Woodland Hills, and I took him to a Corey Feldman party, because Corey Feldman was a friend of mine at the time, and we walk into Corey Feldman's party, and he says to my friend Chris, hey, Neil, I haven't seen you in a long time, Neil Strauss. So I look at Chris and I'm like, is your name Chris or Neil? (laughs) 
And he tells me, well, you know, you can call me either. <laughs> so anyways, Neil and I went out and we sarged for, for a couple of years. We, we used to call it back in the Ross Jeffries days. We used to call it sarging. That was the name of this cat that was for picking up women. So we hung out for a while and he kind of taught me a lot of the stuff that mystery was doing. And eventually I, I befriended one of uh, actually Eben's roommate at the time, a guy who went by the name of Rick H. And a lot of where David D'Angelo got his cocky funny stuff from was this guy, Rick. And so Rick kind of taught me a lot of that stuff. And back then it was wonderful because I was kind of able to take from all of these different styles. And uh, there was this great thing that was created that you were part of called Mysteries Lounge. I don't know, but I just thought it was this wonderful exchanging of ideas before all of us went commercial and didn't share with each other anymore. I, I thought that was a really magical time. And there was a lot of progress made in terms of ideas and, and, and concepts and techniques. Those were good. I, I thought those were good times. Yeah, they were kind of like the golden days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too bad they're gone. So that, that's kind of my history of how I was involved with the game and all of that stuff. Right. So when did your own kind of style emerge? Was it as a result of kind of merging these things together or was it some kind of event? What happened? Because your own style has really influenced a lot of people since then. So did that come about just organically or is there some kind of event or something that happened that kind of triggered it? I think there's a lot of, there's so many things that came about. Um, you know, there are all these different styles. I've, I've always been one of those people that, I learned from someone for a while and then I don't know. I just decide to fuck it all up and try something else. And usually it doesn't work, but eventually I keep trying so many different things that eventually I kind of stumble onto something. And I would say during that time, by all means, I think all these people in different ways, all the people in the, in the lounge, I think everyone definitely influenced me in different ways. But I, during that time, I was going out a lot. I mean, I think a lot of us went through this where we literally like our whole life was picked up, you know, during the day. And I, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely sick. I don't advise this for anyone. <laughs> absolutely pathological. But I started noticing one of the things I started doing, which is kind of sick is every time a woman would reject me or it wouldn't go well with a woman or she made me feel bad about myself, I would actually write out my whole sequence of emotions and what she did to make me feel that way or how she made me maybe prove myself to her or whatever it is. I started studying the patterns of what women were doing to me and I started experimenting with doing that sort of stuff on women mixed with, I would say some of my other big influences back in the day, definitely Robert Greene. That book, Art of Seduction, I think me and Neil really liked it. But a lot of people felt that it was mostly theory and it wasn't applicable. And I beg to differ. That, that book was a huge, huge influence on me. Likewise, uh, Robert Cialdini's Psychology of Influence, I think, is a really brilliant book for how compliance works. And you start thinking about different ways to apply it to seduction or pickup or meeting women. It's it's extremely useful. Great. So so naturally, it sounds like that's where you're really this picking a part of emotion of your own emotions. You managed to understand your approach actually came from that because you're known for a few different strategies, which actually kind of went against the grain um, back in the day. 
like prizing and push and pulling, which we won't get back into much today, but they really did go against the grain. And it's really good to hear the story of how you came about that, because it sounds like it was very systematic, looking at your own emotions and understanding that. I would say a lot of it was in a very big picture way. Rick, who he was uh, David D'Angelo's roommate, and, and Rick had a huge influence on David D'Angelo's whole idea of cocky funny. He also had a big, Rick had a big influence on me. And the big takeaway I got from Rick is the concept of stealing a woman's frame. And so that got me to look at some of the things that women do to make men try and win them over. And by looking at that, I slowly but surely started, it all started by me kind of stumbling onto this concept of making a woman qualify or prove herself to you. There's actually a great line, I think it's from the movie Mean Girls, which uh, I think Lindsay Lohan's character says, just because you don't like someone doesn't mean you don't want them to like you. And that realization was huge for me, that even if a woman didn't like me, she still wanted me to like her, and that I could turn that her need for my validation into attraction. And it absolutely worked like magic. I mean, it still does. It still does. That's interesting. That's interesting. As I said, a lot of the guys who've come after you are definitely being strongly influenced by your material. So I'd say it's alive and strong. And, you know, I know in Jackson's reviews and, and stuff, often you'll say, oh, yeah, this is like some stuff uh, I've seen originally came from some of Swing Cat's work. You definitely created something quite different and unique there um, that survived the times. So how would you say that goes against the grain? Like if we look at the world as it is today and how people court, how is conventional courtship and how does the way you think about it differ from what everyone else is doing out there? Well, I'll give you a description of it and then I'll give you two kind of answers to that. One is what I talked about years ago, which is the whole concept of prizing. And then we'll talk about it within masculine polarity, which is another concept we're going to talk about. Um, so I think how it traditionally works is when a woman enters a bar or a nightclub or a party, typically men orbit around her and they show off their best attributes to the best of their ability. They try and win her over. So the big question is, well, how do women choose which guy that they like or, or that they go home with or whatever? And there's a concept I like to call, I mean, it's something we all have called the vertical polarization bias. So one of the filters through which we see the world is through hierarchies. So typically we think of up as good, down as bad. When you die, you want to go up to heaven. If you're bad, you go down to hell. And even if, I don't know, if you're a, a car enthusiast, you make a, almost a mental list in your mind. You put your favorite cars at the top of the list and you put the cars you don't like so much at the bottom of the list. So we think of things in hierarchies. And typically when a woman walks into a bar, she quickly puts the guys into a hierarchy. So she has the certain guys that she might think are hot. She puts them at the top of the hierarchy and she puts guys that she doesn't think are, are that hot at the bottom of the hierarchy. Typically, the one at the top of the hierarchy in the number one slot is the guy she likes. Throughout the night, as she interacts with these guys, that hierarchy might change a little bit. But at a certain point, it really starts to solidify. And so the guy at the top of the list, he has a pretty good shot at taking her home. Now, number two or number three could oust number one from that position. But here's where things get tough. If you're more towards the top of her hierarchy, 
she's going to be very forgiving of your not so admirable traits and red flags. She's going to be very forgiving of those things. And she's going to be very sensitive to what you have going for you. But if you're at the bottom of the heap, she's not going to let any of your negative traits slide. And she's going to be oblivious to any good traits that you have. So I find for a lot of guys playing this game of conventional courtship doesn't work, especially if you live in a town like LA or a city like London or New York. If you're not tall, dark, handsome and rich and maybe even famous, it, it's very hard to compete against these other guys. If you play this game of orbiting women and trying to win them over. That's really interesting, man. So I bet a lot of guys can relate to this where they feel like they're doing the same things as other guys in the club, but it doesn't seem like they're getting perceived the same way as the women. Like you say, the good things about you will get ignored and the women will focus on the negatives. So I think that's a nice, that's a nice framework that can kind of solidify how perceptual bias works, really, because everyone knows that there is this perceptual bias, but it's kind of a nice, simple little framework you have there for understanding it. Yeah. And I mean, I think that what, what happens for a lot of guys is the more they go out to bars, they become aware of the rules of conventional courtship and they become painfully aware that they need certain qualities to compete against the other orbiters. And if they don't have those qualities, it really seems impossible. But the thing is, is even if you're a guy out there really struggling You've probably noticed that there's some guys that don't seem to have any of the qualities on a woman's dream list, and yet they're still able to get those high quality women. I mean, I think it's similar to uh, in you know cities like New York and L.A. There's always these it nightclubs and you see the big begging trough outside of the club where everyone's begging to get in. And very quickly, if you frequent these places, it can seem like if you're not really good looking, if you don't have a couple of women on your arm, or you aren't willing to pop for bottle service, that it's impossible to get into those clubs. That's the rule. You need these things to get in. And yet every once in a while, you'll see some schlub who doesn't have any women on his arms. He doesn't spend any money at the club. And yet he gets right in. And that's because he's playing a different game. He's not playing by those rules. And I think this is kind of a good metaphor, not only for life, but for some guys play a different game to get high quality women. That's interesting. I think everyone can relate to that uh, example of the New York nightclubs. I've certainly seen it. Yeah, everyone's experienced it. And unless you're a masochist and you're, you're really set on getting into these clubs, which for a long time, I was one of those people. You start to figure out how to get into these places without spending a dime. And the same thing is true with high caliber women is that if you play that game of conventional courtship, unless you're going to spend a lot of money on a plastic surgeon and lots of money on women, it's a really tough game to play. So there's another game that you can play. And I want to talk a little bit about what that is. Great, great. Let's get into it. Is this masculine polarity? Well, we'll get to masculine polarity. So there's a study that is kind of revealing and it kind of shows the direction that I'm going in done by a woman named Annette LaRoe, where she observed the parenting strategies of middle-class and working-class parents. And she noticed that middle-class parents use uh, what, what she calls a concerted cultivation strategy. And what that is, is the middle-class parents instill in their children a sense of proactive entitlement. And that basically is instilling the belief 
that they can get what they want out of a social situation and giving them the strategies for doing it. They also get them involved in lots of extracurricular activities like karate and little league and soccer. And this gives them ample opportunity to practice questioning and challenging and negotiating with adults so they can get what they want out of the social situation and really hone their sense of proactive entitlement. Whereas with working class parents, they instill in their kids more the skills for catering to the needs and desires and uh, judgments of authority figures and teaching them to obey authority figures' boundaries and follow their rules. And so when these kids grow up, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, they have a very, very different set of skills. And because middle-class kids grow up to have this proactive sense of entitlement, they tend on average to be a little bit more successful. And I think this whole kind of model of proactive entitlement spills over nicely into sexuality. I mean, I definitely think that boys who were sexualized at a young age learned a proactive sense of entitlement with women that their late bloomer counterparts oftentimes did not. They definitely learned how to bend the rules and boundaries of women and to ignore words like you aren't my type or I don't sleep with guys on the first date or let's just be friends. And they learn the skills to become sensitive to women's sexual cues and to their attraction signals and learn how to cultivate strategies for exploiting them at a young age. Whereas a lot of late bloomers learned other skills. They learned, they became really good at kissing women's ass, winning them over, uh, catering to their desires and taking what they say at, at face value. So the next big question is, what is this proactive sense of entitlement? And the way that I'm going to break it down is there's two ways. Let me let me back up. I think one definitely is the proactive sense of entitlement is what I call prizing. And the basic idea of prizing is that you basically, a woman sees you as the prize when you have enough value in her eyes, that if you walked away or didn't val uh, validate her, she'd take it as a loss. And one of the ways that in my uh, original ebook, Real World Seduction, that I taught to prize women was to put them, I had this whole concept, I had this whole concept of frames. And when you define the underlying meaning of the interaction between you and a woman as you being the prize and her being the suitor trying to win you over, let me, let me back up. Basically, uh, the idea behind frames is by changing the underlying meaning you put the woman into the role of the suitor trying to win you over, and you put yourself into the role of the prize. So there's another way that you can do it, which I call, uh, that I've been developing the last couple of years, called masculine polarity. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Any questions so far for me? Man, now I think that's a lot to take in, and maybe we could just um, do a quick review of it. So okay, okay. basically, if we go back to this, contemporary model we're trying to flip that on its end the way you approached it was looking basically at the rich and how they have this sense of entitlement and i can i can very much relate to that from many of my experiences if you assume that things are going to work for you they tend to and i'm sure people have heard this in other areas of their life as well like business um, other areas it's kind of like 
if you're confident, more things tend to work for you because you are embedded in that kind of confidence. That word, which is a bit general, like confidence, is often some kind of entitlement because you're acting confidently. It's actually showing that you're kind of entitled to have something. I've seen it work amazing tricks um, in my travels. In China, they have lots of clubs where um, there would be VIP or you, would, you wouldn't have access to them. But me and my friends, we would walk up to the club entrances and we'd walk around the lines of people standing to get in there and we just kind of walk in and this is our thing and, and we'd never get stopped I and mean, it was kind of weird like people who saw it would kind of get weirded out by it and the, the people in the queue would think something was going on it was just this sense of entitlement and sometimes the people at the door would say like uh oh, like you, you can't come in or anything but they had like low-end voices because they could see that we were just like assuming that it wasn't going to be a problem and we go yeah yeah it's fine and you know we're just going to come in and walk in and it was never a problem you can't do that everywhere but it's just an example of where i've seen this working a lot and the more you get used to being entitled for sure like feeling that things are within your grasp uh, the better off everything is for you Oh, I, I totally agree. And it's it's something that the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And I, th I think what's interesting is entitlement a lot of times is misunderstood. So someone who is stuck at a low end job, well, in a sense, they have a sense of entitlement. They certainly think their talents aren't recognized or they aren't paid enough money, but they don't have the belief that they can actually get what they want out of the situation or from another person, and they don't have the skills for doing it. And I think what you're talking about, getting into the club and kind of assuming that you're someone who should get into the club is a skill that's cultivated over time. I and mean, it's something that has to be practiced. You have to get used to kind of having having that sense of entitlement and assuming it with other people, right? Right, right. You're kind of saying there's two points, because I, I think we were talking just before the call, like some people can have this sense of entitlement where it doesn't work because they kind of don't have the skills or anything to follow up with it. It actually kind of makes the situation worse and it, and it aggravates relationships and stuff because the people around them aren't going with that frame. So whatever it is that makes that frame work, they don't have it. So I guess that's the kind of the key here that there's something, you can't just assume it, you need to actually have the skills behind it. So I don't know if you're going to go into more detail about like what it is actually underneath that that makes it work or... One of the things, and we'll kind of get there, but I'll give you a bit big breadcrumb. A lot of what I believe prevents men from having entitlement with women is actually their ego. I really believe that's where a lot of the problems stem from. The basic idea for entitlement, one of my basic ideas is something called masculine polarity. So you're familiar with the yin-yang symbol? Yeah. Yeah. So for people at home, it's, oh man, it's been a while since I explained this. You... So basically yin is a feminine energy. It's a, it's a feminine polarity and yang is a masculine polarity. And the basic idea is when the polarities align, they attract each other like magnets. One of the issues is that because of how conventional courtship is set up, men usually end up projecting a feminine polarity and they actually pull the woman into a masculine polarity. So what happens is, is as, as men orbit a woman, they feel more and more attraction for her. She may feel a mild attraction for one of her orbiters and that's the one that she ends up choosing. If you're a guy that doesn't have all the conventional things that women are looking for is a pretty lousy model to follow. 
But if you learn to project a masculine polarity, something almost magical happens. You pull the woman into a feminine polarity and she begins to orbit you. And she feels a strong polarity attraction. And instead of seeing you in relation to other guys, she sees herself in relation to you. So instead of putting you somewhere on that hierarchy, that hierarchy becomes irrelevant and she worries about where she falls on your hierarchy. So I'm into reading like weird philosophers and stuff like that. And the existentialist Soren Kierkegaard said that a person doesn't become a complete self until it defines itself in terms of something outside of itself. And do you have any comments on that? No, but this is something that I think is embedded in science. The only way we understand anything in our lives is compared to other things. Everything's relative, the way we look at things, the smells. I mean, you can tell this if you're sitting in a room that smells. After a while, you can't smell anything. You walk out of the room, you walk back in, and all of a sudden you can smell it again because it's relative. Your senses are relative compared to everything else. So, yeah, I mean, definitely, and everything is kind of the meaning of it is very contextual. And I think for women, this is even more true for them than it is for men. For a lot of women, this is just the truth. They don't feel complete. They don't feel like a complete self until they define themselves in terms of a man. Largely, what it means for a woman to be romantically in love with a guy is for that guy to become her whole world, for him to define her. A way to put it is that masculine polarity largely defines feminine polarity. So when you project a masculine polarity, the woman is compelled to define herself in terms of you. So put another way, her self-worth and sense of identity hinges on you when you have her in a feminine polarity. Right. So does this have anything to do with the way the world's changing, modernizing a bit? Because we say that women are less feminine than they used to be. They have taken on some masculine traits because now they're working and their lives are a little bit different than they used to be. So I'm trying to like understand why is the woman getting sucked into the feminine polarity and she's not quite there yet? Is it because the times have changed or is it because unless we're acting like a real masculine man, then she, she's... When I talk about masculine polarity, we're going to get into some of part of that structure. I don't think it necessarily has to do with... This actually has little to do with acting like an alpha male or anything like that. And there are certain elements I'll get into, but I will say, I will say this, that in our culture, it is true that men are acting more masculine, but at the same time, I'm sorry, women are acting more masculine, but at the same time, men are acting more feminine. And then there's this feminization of, of men in our culture. And a lot of it has to do with, I think, more and more we're bogged down and controlled by by our ego to put this into this feminine polarity. So it sounds like you're saying that we're considering ourselves magnets or, or whatever, that men are closer to a female polarity than they should be. And women are closer to a masculine. And for that reason, I think so. our, our bonds and our attraction aren't as strong as they used to be. And also, she's so she's kind of more free to look around the room because there's nothing strong attracting. There's nothing strongly pulling her towards anything. But if you can reinforce your masculinity, you can change that. Is that kind of... I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly okay. right. And so I want to talk about some of... There's 10 parts to really developing a masculine polarity. But I want, I want to talk about a couple of them that I think are really crucial. And I think projecting a masculine polarity so you can pull a woman into a feminine polarity 
really starts with developing an inward locus of validation. And basically what that means is that you draw your self-worth from the inside, from yourself, as opposed to outside sources, uh, as opposed to other people. Now, I'm not suggesting that you become the Buddha or anything like that. It's actually perfectly fine if you do get validation from other external forces. But I think what's imperative is that your self-worth doesn't hinge on the woman you're trying to seduce. It doesn't hinge on her giving you validation. I guess that's maybe difficult for guys to understand sometimes in, in real values. Like, I guess if we take a little scenario here, like say they get rejected by a girl. Maybe they got her a number in a bar or whatever, and they call her and she's like, after about a quick five minute chat, she's like, uh, you know, I got to go, uh, got something else to do. It was nice talking. You know, she kind of like lakes on the call. So in that situation, how is he supposed to uh, feel or how is he supposed to react to that in a way that he retains, he, he's not getting affected by her and he retains his own self-worth and he looks at himself rather than that, that external situation? So, yeah, of course, there's situations where the girl doesn't, and we'll get into more of these, but there's situations where the girl maybe doesn't call you back or you're talking to a girl and seems things seem to be going great. She starts flirting with another guy or laughing at jokes and internally you feel angry about that. And it's totally normal. It's not that some guys feel that we've all had that before. And I think anyone who says they haven't had that is a lying sack of shit. We've all had it. It's a normal human, human response. But the reality of it is that that's your ego that's doing that. And another example is if you approach a girl and she acts bitchy towards you, you always want a great line to put her in her place. And that's your ego being reactive. And I am going to give some exercises for not getting hooked by your ego. So I think one of the big tricks to staying in a masculine polarity and having a strong masculine polarity is not getting hooked by your ego, not getting sucked into needing the woman's validation. And that's not just for masculine polarity. That's where some of my earlier stuff, when I talk about being the prize, you know, the, the typical frame obviously is the guy who's very reactive and wants the woman's validation that throws him into the frame of trying to win the woman over, putting her up on a pedestal, seeing her as the prize. As you start to detach from your ego, you can reverse that frame and make the woman actually chase you, see you as the prize and put her into the role of the suitor. Or the frame I typically use now is that I put her into the role of the pleaser, wants nothing more than to please me. And I'm the chooser that gets to decide if she qualifies as uh, pleasing me. Great. So what would be some practical measures to create this situation? And I'm going to give some very practical advice. And if you want me to, I will, but I, I really don't want to give any particular lines or techniques. And really what I want to show are ways of controlling your ego so you can naturally stay within this masculine polarity. Yeah, sounds good. Is that, is that cool? Yeah, it sounds better. Okay, okay. So I, I, I know probably some of your listeners really want some great, great pickup lines, but there's a reason why I have plenty of material out there to want lots of great techniques and stuff for that. But I want to talk about something, some stuff a little bit different, if that's okay. Oh, this stuff sounds a lot more in line with, we've been taking things over the years to allow guys to get to do this themselves. I mean, 
guys are using routines less and less in reality. Like the guys in our academy don't necessarily use routines at all, really very much. They use them to just get started and then they want to move on and actually develop themselves. And this sounds like it's a lot more in line with that kind of thing. Is that correct? Let me ask you a question because I'm actually curious. Are you glad that I'm guessing at a certain point you used all those routines, right? For me, it was actually kind of funny because when I first started, it was just before mystery came around, right? So there weren't routines and I didn't get into the Ross Jeffries stuff. So all I did was go out and start shooting my mouth off. And it was kind of like this experiment. And I guess I was lucky because the two guys I met in London, they weren't using any Ross Jeffries or anything like that. They were just confident and going out and being playful. And and so I hung out with them and I just started talking a lot more and things went well for me. And then a few years later, when all the routines came, I started to use that and practice that. And some of it worked for me. I mean, what I noticed also was that I went through this intense time, just like you, where I was just going out all day, all night, as you said, which was pretty pathological. And what happened is like you have your own routines that just grow out of that because you've, you've met so many girls that the same lines are just coming out of you because there's only so many ways a conversation can go at the end of the day. Um, and, and given your personality, you're going to say the same things or your experience, your lifestyle and so on. So you develop your own routines. And that's kind of what happened for me. I just kind of found that that wasn't working for me in terms of the routine. It was getting very boring as well. I started a company. Uh, coaching people with this. And at that time, it was was a lot of routines to help the guys get started. Because I was also going out and teaching people in the clubs, I was having to do this even more. I I tell you, it gets really boring very quick to say the same lines all the time, you know, Um, especially when it starts becoming your job. And it got to the point where when you say them, it's like your mouth doesn't want to say them anymore. I don't know if you got to this stage, but it's like your mouth will just start tripping on the words because your brain is so bored by the words. There's, There's no life to them. That's what I found with routines, ultimately. If you're going to go down that route that far, then it does become like our Neil Strauss once said, you become this kind of social robot, right? Where you're not being responsive or natural anymore. So that was kind of, and then I went back to just being myself and kind of going back to where I'd started from, which was just shooting my mouth off, having learned naturally what kind of works and what doesn't just through tons of experience in the field, I guess. I think for me, initially, it gave me a sense of maybe you didn't go through this because you learned routines after you had kind of mastered you know, doing more of the natural thing. But for me, it definitely gave me a lot of false confidence, like a sense of false confidence. I liked it because without having to think about anything, it just became mindless. I had these, you know, great pickup lines, witty responses to things women said. But similar to you, after a while, the line, and I always kind of tried to come up with my own material, but after a while, it just didn't seem to work anymore. So I come up with new stuff and kind of like, you know, when you get a new shirt, I got the same sense of false confidence again, but then I found myself getting worse. And I kind of liken canned material to uh, GPS. I'm a pretty directionally challenged person. So GPS is kind of like a real godsend for me. But I find over time, as I rely on it, it erodes my familiarity and sensitivity to my environment. And I've lost, to a large extent, my ability to navigate myself around town. And in a similar way, can material over time, the more you use it, the more you rely on it, and the more it dulls your sensitivity to your environment and the women in front of you. I mean, put simply... Over the long haul, I find that canned material makes you socially dumb as a stump. And uh, I think we've seen this with the social robots 
that canned material can make people become. I mean, we, we've definitely seen it with people we know we've been around the scene long enough. I don't know. I think in a way, canned material is a Band-Aid for a bigger problem. I think that uh, there's a reason why guys are always asking or, or struggle to think of what to do or say to get the girl. And I think a lot of it is because their own ego is kind of pulling them into their head and hemming in their perception. And uh, not to get philosophical on you again, but <laughs> Aristotle talks about uh, something uh, called phronimos, which is a kind of ethical master. And a phronimos doesn't rely on ethical principles to guide his actions. Instead, he lets the situation itself solicit him to take the appropriate course of action. And what I find is when you really start, and this happens over time, it's happened for a lot of us, when you start to let go of your ego and push your perception outward, oftentimes the situation itself is going to show you what to do to get the girl. And I don't know if uh, you've probably had some experiences with that, where you're letting the environment itself and the girl in front of you guide your actions. And we kind of talked about how meaning is, is contextual. When you're using these one-size-fits-all routines for every situation, oftentimes they come across as very artificial because they don't fit the situation you're in. And if you open up your perception, you'll see exactly what to do. Over time, you'll develop those intuitions. So do, do people need as much pathological experience as us to be able to do this? Or That's a good question. And I guess that's what I was getting at before is I've often asked myself the question, did I really need to go through all this stuff to do all these routines and stuff like that to get to the point that I am now? And if we kind of narrow that to, let's say, uh, opinion openers, you know, there was a big phase where everyone was using opinion openers. It made it very easy. Do I need to say what an opinion opener is or do your listener? No, we've definitely covered it on the show before. So if you don't know what an opinion opener is, you can definitely go back down um, to some of the first shows. And I'm sure we've got a whole episode on on routines at one time. Okay. So there was a time where I thought, well, you know, it was good that I went through all those opinion openers because it allowed me to approach literally thousands of, of women that maybe I otherwise wouldn't have. But the more that I think about it, if I were to teach myself back in the day, if I could teach Josh 15 years ago, I would not teach him opinion openers. It's scary, but I think you got to buck up and take the risk and just learn how to talk to people. And I think opinion openers are a big crutch, ultimately. If you're really, really shy and you just want to get the experience of talking to someone, okay. But I think at a certain point, you just need to learn how to talk to girls. And if all you're doing is the opinion opener, it can turn into a huge crutch and it will prevent you from kind of developing your intuitions and reading the situation itself. I think back in the day, one of the type of openers that uh, we had was the uh, situational opener, where you read the situation. Well, I think that's the only type of good opener these days. That's kind of natural, right? You're just picking up on something funny in the situation or, or whatever it is, and you'll bring it out. So I know people call that a situational opener, but it's kind of vibing just off the situation. Like you said, it's like paying attention to what's going on. And I guess the value in it like when I think about it, the value is in it. If if you can pay attention and you see more than other people, that's often where you, you become witty, you have humor, because you'll see something in a situation which other people haven't noticed and the girl herself hasn't, and you'll point it out and then she'll see it. And, and that creates value and that, that makes it's funny um, and it makes you stand out as well. So it goes back to that point of you saying that 
you have to develop these skills to pay more attention to the situation rather than kind of pulling away and putting these routines in front of you, which do, I see where you're coming from. They, they stop you looking at everything because you're really more inside your head because you've memorized these things and you, you're pushing them out, but you're not paying, as we normally do in any situation, we're paying attention to the external in order to relate to it. Yeah, exactly. So the situation itself, the woman herself, she'll put out attraction signals that if you're outside of your head, if you're not, when you're attached to your ego, you're constantly looking for signs of validation that she likes you. When when you're outside of your head, you see signals, you see openings, you see se- signals of sexual interest, you see your sexual cues, you see attraction signals, you see opportunities to vibe with her whether it's something funny happening in your environment or something she says, when you're present and in the moment, you can see things that you simply can't see when you're, when you're in your head. When you're in your head, it's very hard to connect to people. And you have to do these very kind of cookie cutter things like have your vulnerability routine or this or that to create this artificial sense of connection. But when you get outside of your head, it's just naturally you're going to have interesting conversations with women and where the conversation goes. I find that this is a lot of uh, the fun of vibing with women is there's this element of serendipity where there's unexpected surprises that happen in the conversation where unexpectedly you discover you have things in common with them, where you give them the space to prove to you what an awesome girl they are instead of constantly throwing all your wares, throwing all your attraction, bragging to them about all your accomplishments and stuff like that and how awesome you are, that doesn't really give them the space to prove to you how great they are. And the very act of them proving to you how great they are and then you rewarding that does really put them in the frame of either trying to win you over or trying to please you. Because I, I really do think at the end of the day, and some people don't necessarily think this, this is my model and it works for me, that women ultimately are pleasers and they want to please you. And you've got to give them space to do that and space to really enjoy getting your validation instead of you constantly smothering them and asking for their validation. There's definitely something to that. We all know everyone likes a challenge. It's just in our nature. Oh, yeah. yeah um, absolutely. And whatever we're given lightly um, is not something we're going to value. I know. Um, so at this point, that's pretty much very, very hard science. So I'm wondering, uh, in terms of practice points, you said you had 10 points, you define this masculine polarity, which enables us to change this, this frame. So we've been talking a lot about the ego. Is that one part of masculine polarity or is it the whole thing? I think the ego is actually involved in all of these parts. So, um, Okay. Did we go through the uh, 10 parts yet? No, there was a few of them we've touched on, I believe. I think Uh, we went over, uh, uh, I'll just say what the 10 parts are, and then maybe we'll cover one or two more. So the first one is an inward locus of validation. I think we talked about that a bit. And uh, the second is being desire-driven as opposed to ego-driven. The third is being the chooser. The fourth is taking the initiative. Uh, The fifth is replacing boundaries. When you're in a feminine polarity, typically you see a woman as having a lot of boundaries that you have to get past. Whereas when you're in a masculine polarity, there's a perceptual shift where you see openings. A lot of that has to do with getting outside your head, which is in letting the situation itself guide your actions. I guess that's another step. Then we have uh, handicapping, we have radical honesty, and we have setting the right precedent. Let me talk a little bit about radical honesty. I'm interested in this one in particular. Years ago, 
I actually discovered a book called Radical Honesty, and I was drawn to it. And it's written by this kooky and radically honest therapist named Brad Blanton. And there's actually a great article you can find. I think it was published back in 2007 in Esquire magazine where they interviewed this guy. And during the interview, he's uh, picking his nose and scratching his balls and farting loudly. He actually believes that the one sneak cheek, I think he calls it, is a bit deceitful. And he confesses to sleeping with, I think, over 500 women, like half a dozen men and hermaphrodite hooker with complete double organs. He, he cops to letting uh, his dog lick him off. And so this guy does sound like a complete kook, but I think there's something very simple and true about his philosophy, which is that we'd all be better off telling the truth. And while lying is easy and we all do it, it creates more problems than good. And that goes for even those small lies. So I actually, my sister and I made my sister read the book and we made a vow to practice radical honesty for an entire year. And to be fair, I actually, we really had a good time making people cringe. I really took this to the, to the extreme. Uh, there was a family friend of ours, and she asked me if this dress she was wearing made her look fat. And since I had to practice radical honesty, I told her, the dress doesn't make you look fat, but to be honest with you, it looks like you put on about 12 pounds and I can really see it in your face. Have you been, <laughs> have you been, uh, have you upped your sodium intake? And she burst into tears. So probably my sister and I uh, inherited a bit of uh, schadenfreude from my grandmother. And to be fair, we really weren't practicing radical honesty. We were using radical honesty as a carte blanche to be assholes to people. Um, but after that, I did practice some real radical honesty, which is really difficult because when trying to be radically honest 100% of the time is really hard because so much of what we say and do is layered and layered with bullshit, with deceit. I mean, just on so many different levels. And I don't know, I find if you confront a lot of people on being liars, they'll defend themselves on the grounds that they don't want to offend other people or they don't want to hurt their feelings, that they're protecting them. And I think this is utter bullshit. The need to lie often stems from a need to protect and coddle and enable that insidious little bastard we call the ego. <laughs> you gonna say that? <laughs> and... And I think the real reason we lie is that we want others to like us. Um, right, right. You know, we want others' uh, validation. And oftentimes, us men, and I'm guilty of this, will pretend to like things that a woman likes to impress her or to spark a common interest. And then if you're a pickup artist or player, sometimes you do the inverse. You judge a woman for liking something that you secretly like to give her a hard time to challenge her and make her qualify herself to you. These things are very common. We've all, we've all done them. But in all fairness, lying, as we all know, has enormous consequences because one, you have to keep the lie up. And oftentimes you got to make up even more lies to cover your tracks. So I don't know, maybe you were making fun of a woman for liking Dave Matthews, but secretly you've got a huge poster of him in your living room. Now you've got to take down that poster when she comes to your house so she doesn't know that you were bullshitting. Or maybe uh, a woman was really into Beyonce and you hate Beyonce, but you pretended to like her. Well, 
Now you got to worry about her grilling you on Beyonce songs or even worse, her dragging you to like a Beyonce concert. You know, now you got to go to this terrible concert. So, yeah. I mean, worse, I think there's a great book. I don't know if you've read it, by the way, by Sam Harris called Lying. No, but I'm a um, fan of which, Sam, Sam Harris. You know, yeah. Yeah, so I, I read that book, and I haven't read Radical Honesty, but I've heard about Radical Honesty. And uh, as soon as I, after I read Lying, I had the same thing. I, I just decided, all right, that's it. I'm not going to waste my time lying anymore because it just hurts. It just comes back to hurt you long term. It's always this kind of this short term. When you were saying about the ego, I was like, yep, that's definitely where it's going. It's like every time you lie, it's, it's in some form trying to protect your ego rather than the other, like you say. Um, and it makes you feel very uncomfortable when you first start to stop lying in those little white lies. I think it's the, the, the white lies are the hardest things because it's the things that everyone's doing all the time just to make situations more socially easy. I guess you do it more in uh, West Coast than East Coast. Is yeah. that well, that's probably true. That's probably true. I definitely agree with you on that. Uh, and I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of, I, I think it's really funny, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, when you start practicing radical honesty and you stop making those white lies, one of the things that happened to me is I became quite disgusted with myself because I became aware of what a liar I was. I would lie all throughout the day and that there were layers upon layers of lies. But you do, I, I think by not lying, you definitely do become a more powerful person. And, and the other thing too is when you tell the truth, you really start connecting with people in a much more genuine way. That's true because everyone is going to the mainstream image that's what kind of the ego does it's like this is the mainstream what we're supposed to be say to be cool but it is this mainstream thing where everyone can be a lot more unique and if you want to stand out and be a bit more unique simply being yourself and and saying no matter how weird you think it is i'm recently when i want to go on dates i've been like i get into biotech and stuff and and pretty geeky stuff and um i'll talk about mris or whatever crazy shit i've been doing lately in terms of testing and stuff like that and it's it's an interesting experiment because you think girls are gonna think that's totally fucked up and it's weird and i haven't not one time has anyone not taken an interest in this subject to be like oh really what the hell's that all that about you know and taking a, a deep interest in it so I think, I'm not sure why we have this fear of uncloaking ourselves. I guess it's because once we are out there and it's the real us, then we've got something really to be worried. Because if we do get rejected, it's not just this model that we're faking. It's actually something real. I don't know you've got ideas on what, what's stopping guys from going out and practicing radical honesty. Uh, I think anyone can start practicing it and, and they'll develop more of a masculine polarity by practicing it. But I think what prevents us from being radically honest is what I talked about before, that we have this need to be liked by other people. It's not that we're such noble people that that we don't want to offend or hurt other people. It's that we want them to like us. So we tend to like the things they like and we cater our conversation to something that they they will like when you're vibing with someone. You do need to take them into consideration. But what you shouldn't do is if someone's talking about something that bores you. You shouldn't pretend that you're into that. And it's perfectly fine to tell someone that you really aren't interested in that conversational topic. Or if a woman's talking about something you don't know about, it's perfectly fine to say, oh, yeah, I have no idea what this is about. Like, educate me. You know, that's totally fine, too. And that's. Yeah, actually, this like I'm in L.A. at the moment and that comes up all the time. I'm just like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Educate me. Which is great. It's so good to 
do that because so many people don't. And then you find yourself talking to someone and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I know about that. And you find out that they have no idea what the fuck <laughs> you were talking about. And what you thought was a connection, not a connection. Well, I guess that's an important point you're making as well, because until you're honest about what you don't understand about their conversation and what you do understand, then there can't be any real connection. And at some point, they're going to realize that they're going to like, oh, he was just saying yes, but he didn't really connect with me on that topic. And then they'd start to disbelieve in the whole connection. And I think, you know, something that, that uh, we can both relate to is early on in the pickup community back back in the mystery lounge days. And this is probably largely true now, although I think we're start, we're all starting to go in a different direction is that you learn all these different tactics. You've got the, the qualifying and you've got the challenging and you've got the push-pull and you've got the time to compliment a woman. And really early on when we were using all this stuff, we, most of us, most of the pickup community was terribly disingenuous and fake. The whole thing was, was super plastic and fake. But what I find is that when you start practicing radical honesty, you don't need to worry about how do you make this woman qualify to you? Or how do you challenge her? Or how do you pay her a compliment? Or when to pay her a compliment? Or how do you use push-pull? But when you're truly genuine, you'll just naturally start uh, challenging her at the right time and paying her compliments at the right time and using push-pull in just the right way. Um, you, we all naturally do these things. The reason why we have a hard time doing them is because most of us are consummate liars. When you're connecting with someone for real, there are things you're going to like about them and there are things you aren't going to like about them. And so the idea of uh, push-pull, which is a concept I've talked about before, is the idea of emotionally pushing someone away from you and then emotionally pulling them back in. So the idea of, I, to give you an old line that I used to use is one was I would tell the girl, and this is fine to use if it's true, is I would tell the girl, you know, if she was very sarcastic, I would accuse her of being sarcastic. And I would say something like, I'm sarcastic too. And if we hung out, we'd have the best time making fun of everyone at their expense, but then we'd be karmically tainted. So we can't hang out. So there's a push and there's a pull and it goes back and forth with that. But Instead of memorizing a bunch of push-pull lines, if you're real with people, you'll actually naturally do this in your communication. I've got a good example of that because I think that's something that guys might, because they may have heard of this push and pull, and it sounds like it's uh, hard to do, push and pull. It's not something natural for them. But I'm just thinking of an example just earlier this evening, actually, where like I did push-pull by acting naturally, by just being honest. Oh, like a girl called me up and I was like, oh, yeah, um... She's like, what are you doing tonight? And I was like, well, I'd, what I was loved, I wanted to take you to this event, but I can't because I'm going to do this interview because I had a, my battery uh, failed yesterday and I had to reschedule my, you know, so I was just telling her this, but actually there was a push pull in there because I was saying I was going to take you out, but then I didn't because this is what happened. And most people would like delete that whole story because first of all, maybe they'd be afraid of like the first time the girl called me up, they'd sort of be afraid of just saying, oh, I was thinking about taking you out this quickly, right kind of thing. And, or I was planning to do something and then now I can't do it. And then they'd be maybe one not get into like the negatives uh, on the other side. Um, but it does just kind of happen naturally. I think we're always kind of like planning and things don't work out. And or you're thinking something and then you decide against it. I think people can relate to this. Like you'll think, oh, maybe I should do this. And I like, no, I'm not so interested in that. After all, our thoughts aren't actually really super solid and, and planned out all the time. So I think that's where this natural thing of push pull can come from 
is that if you really, really do get to where you are coming from, then often the things we think, we kind of go backwards and forwards anyway. I don't know if that's how you think of it naturally. I definitely think there's a lot to that. And oftentimes in school, we're taught to put together logical and coherent thoughts. And when we communicate with other people, oftentimes because we want to appease them, we make our thoughts very logical and coherent. But the reality is naturally our thoughts are oftentimes in contradiction with each other. And there's a concept in hypnosis that they use to induce trance called apposition of opposites. And the idea is putting two things together, juxtaposing two things that don't go together. And so when there's two things that don't fit together, and you make the mind concentrate on both of them, people have a, their critical factor has a tendency to go down and it's very hypnotic, it's very entrancing. And so I think part of being radically honest is that you come across a little bit more than that. And instead of people thinking that you're a bad communicator, they actually get more kind of pulled into uh, uh, you, they see you as more charismatic. Um, and I also think that's a good, that is a good example of push-pull. The other thing that happens when you're radically honest with people is that they have a tendency to qualify to you and prove themselves to you. And unlike the pickup artist that just wants to be difficult with a woman, so he disagrees with her for no particular reason. And I don't mean to use pickup artists. I, I mean, to a large extent, uh, I consider myself a pickup artist or seducer, but certain guys out there, guys who uh, haven't learned this stuff. Maybe a guy like at the club will be difficult with a woman just to be difficult with her. But if you're just honest, like the woman talks about something that uh, you're not interested in and you're honest with her that, you know, this conversation's boring me, automatically she's going to prove herself to you or she's going to try and cater to you at that point. And that definitely puts her into the frame of pleasing you and trying to win you over and kind of put you up on a pedestal. But one other thing I want to say is I don't think we just lie to others, but the main radical honesty we all need to practice is being radically honest with ourselves because most of us are lying sacks of shit to ourselves. And we often, why do we do this? We do it to protect our fragile egos. And a lot of times- You really hate the ego, don't you, man? <laughs> I will, I, he, he, he is my enemy, but I, I will say the ego is definitely, you can't get rid of the ego. He's a parasitic twin that's attached to you for life. So you gotta learn to deal with it. I'll give you some stuff, some exercises for that. But a lot of times we guys will talk about how they're 100% confident and secure with themselves. And I certainly have been out with guys like that. that they'll kind of make fun of meditation or inner game. And they talk about, you know, being alpha and having confidence. And then when it comes time to talk to women, they're scared to death to approach. So there's something not, not quite right there in terms of their, their confidence level. And I think the first step to controlling the ego is recognizing exactly how it controls us. And to me, you do that through being 100% honest with yourself when you're feeling insecure or when you're making excuses for yourself for maybe not pursuing a woman or, you know, not approaching her. That's, I like the concept, man. It's something that transparency and accountability to yourself, there's certainly things that work for me in my life. And not just in this area, but in everything. So, you know, I totally get where you were coming from and how that works. I mean, I would say until until you're not transparent with yourself, it makes it very difficult to go forward. And I've seen this in some people's lives where they'll often make excuses 
or they'll say, oh, I didn't do that because of X reason. And basically, I think a good practice is to write down, just try and write down in a journal your, your true thoughts. Um, so you can go backwards as well and you can look over and, and you can see if things line up because sometimes our mind will try to trick us. We're talking about something that's pretty tricky here. Like you're talking about girl, guys who are approaching girls in clubs, right? And they say, oh, I didn't approach the nine because she wasn't a nine. Like she, she was a seven or a six, right? Or, or whatever. Those kind of things can be pretty tricky because, you know, guys will say those a lot and they'll kind of believe them in the moment and irrealistically. So I'm not sure what the answer is to solving that. I think one thing can be just trying to journal as truthfully as possible. And then the next step is to try and maybe communicate that to others. So... You know, like um, when, when we were learning this stuff, you obviously met people that you were able to talk to pretty straightforwardly about this stuff. And I know you, you're pretty straightforward and you'll talk about the stuff, the, the dark side, the, the positive side and everything and try and get at the truth of it. Right. Once you've got a few people like that around you, you can start to develop it more and it helps you yourself. I didn't see the value in what's called, quote unquote, inner game. Um when I got into this stuff, you know, I wanted to learn all the techniques and stuff like that. I saw myself as someone that was quite secure with myself and didn't think that I had many insecurities. And it was more about learning the techniques and stuff like that. And it was really when I started to work on kind of the inner game stuff, when I really dug into the ego, that um, I was a bit horrified of what I found. I would say, even if a guy thinks he's secure, yet he's not getting the results he wants, he should probably do some exercises to look inside his ego and see what's under the hood. Because the first step to really getting control of that is, you know, it's like an AA. The first step one is acceptance, right? And it's accepting that you're, you're basically your ego's little bitch. And you've got to recognize that to start gaining control of it and to reverse the roles. Absolutely. So hopefully today you've managed to persuade some guys that it's time to accept that it's there. And I, I think like you said, that everyone has an aspect of this, right? I'm not going to say I don't have an ego today. Yeah. Even though with all, all the hours and everything I've put into this, I certainly have an ego. Right. I certainly feel it's much better than it used to be. Right. So before we end this, I could share a couple exercises for kind of getting control of your ego that have been really helpful for me. And um, the journal idea is not only a good idea, but I did the journal thing for probably around 10 years. So maybe one day I'll, I'll publish those. That would and be I interesting. Just, I wrote, wrote out all of my insecurities, all of that stuff. Yeah. So it's something I've been working on a long time. And I don't think you ever get to the point where you don't have an ego. You always have an ego. And it's putting your ego in check is a muscle that you constantly have to flex. And if you don't work on it, your ego will start to control you again. And that's just the reality of it. Excellent. So you're saying there journaling is a great idea. It's a great idea. So I don't know if we have a little time. I have some uh, couple exercises that you can use to uh, to control, to help control your ego. A couple of them I can share right here. Sure, sure. That would be really helpful for the guys. Okay, so, and this is kind of uh, an exercise to, it's a meditation exercise. And it's just, the point of it is just to get to know your ego and all the crazy thoughts, because before you can gain control of your ego, you've got to become aware of the different thought patterns that he has. So just a simple thing to do is to find a quiet place, put a timer on your phone for 15 minutes, and you can either sit in your meditation lotus position, or you can just sit in a chair. It doesn't really matter. 
Personally, I like to do my meditation se uh, sessions with my eyes open because I want the ability to control my ego in environments or situations where I have my eyes open. But if you rather do your eyes closed, I think that's fine as well. The main thing is, is that you spend 15 minutes just focusing on your breath. And inevitably, what's going to happen is thoughts are going to pop into your head. The main thing is, is don't fight it because you can't. Your ego is like a radio that never shuts the fuck up. So don't even worry about fighting it. The purpose of this exercise is really twofold. And uh, first purpose is just to gain awareness of all the crazy thoughts going on inside your head. And if you do the exercise, there's a good chance you're not going to like what you discover. I actually remember when I first started doing these meditation sessions, I worry that I needed to be committed. Um, because there were all sorts of crazy thoughts that I became aware of. But this is a really important step because this is how you're going to begin to recognize all of those destructive thought patterns that your ego uses to control you. So it's extremely important. And, and the second purpose of this is to start training yourself not to get hooked by your ego's crazy thoughts. So what you can't shut them up is going to keep jabbering on all this nonsense, you can train yourself, you can flex that muscle of not getting hooked by a thoughts. And I'm going to give you two visualization things you can do when you're doing your meditation exercise. And some of these sound a little bit hokey, but they absolutely work. So one is to imagine a river in your mind as you're doing your breathing, your 15-minute meditation thing. Imagine a river in your mind. And anytime a thought pops up, simply stick it on a leaf and put it down the river. And uh, it may linger for a little bit. Eventually, it will go downstream. Now, another one you can do, and this is one I actually really like, is imagining your mind as a rock concert. And your breath is the star. That's where you're shining the light. Now, all of your other thoughts are roadies who are trying to take the spotlight away from your breath. So simply, when one of your thoughts tries to do that, simply put the spotlight back on your breath. And this really this really works. And, and these two exercises, if you practice them, you'll get better at not letting your ego hook you and not getting hooked by all of the crazy thoughts. So for me, that one is pretty useful. Um, but I thought I'd give, I'd give another one. I think it's important to learn how to do this. Let me just jump in because um, the whole meditation thing I know I've been doing for a while. And like you, you were just saying you do that with your eyes open so that you'll be able to do it in normal situations, um, kind of step out yourself. So just to bring it into the context of dating, you know, if a guy goes to a bar and he starts to get all of these negative thoughts, well, if he's been meditating, he's more likely to think, ah, there goes those, my ego, right? Rather than actually being completely tied to it and not even seeing it, like, because he's actually feeling part of it and he's so submerged in it that he doesn't realize that it's his ego and not him. So in that dating situation, it allows you, like you said, to be there and let put it on the leaf and let it go down the stream. Um, so like you, well, I started off meditating in a very quiet place. In fact, the only place I could ever get to actually meditate was if I went to the gym and I went to the sauna afterwards. And then I was slightly able to meditate. That's how bad I was many, many years ago. Um, it was the only way I could like, because I was in the right state of mind and it was quiet in there. There was no one there and it was kind of hot. And then, and I'd close my eyes and then slowly I've exposed myself to more and more situations until last summer I would sit, I was living in Malaga at the time 
and I would sit in one of the, the main public places, the biggest square, and I would meditate at the side with my eyes open. And it's like a bustling square with tons of tourists and everything. But it means like once you get into that stage, can you kind of take it step by step and you can get to that point where you're in any situation and you can be meditating and, and be free and not be like uh, writing your own thoughts like that. So I don't know if you can relate to that, if you did it step by step or you just jumped to. Yeah, that's actually I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, done any of the Griffith Park uh, trails since you've been in L.A. No, I haven't. Uh, Oh, I, no, I have actually. I've done it once or twice, actually, accidentally. <laughs> yeah, I've done it twice, actually. So uh, one of the trails, I would hike up to the top and then I would, would meditate. And I started doing this early in the morning oh, nice. a lot. And what I noticed is that there was a lot of other hikers on the trail. And I could kind of like feel their energy, like looking at me because I was in lotus position and I'm sitting there. And at first it would totally take me out of the meditative state, but after a while you're able to do it. And as you were saying, the nice thing is, is when you find yourself in those high stress social situations, like approaching a woman in, in a popular nightclub, you're able to stay in that state because you practice meditating in kind of situations where there's other people around. And um, yeah, put it into language that the guys might like. It's practicing being cool. It's practicing being <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll be able to stay cool in situations instead of getting sucked into them. Exactly. Exactly. Another one which is, is similar to this is getting to know, it's very similar, getting to know your thought patterns while you're actually approaching a girl. So this, this can be a bit more challenging than the last exercise. Basically, the idea is, is the next time you spot an attractive woman, I want you to walk towards her with the intent of approaching her, but without using a can't pickup line. So no going up to her and saying hi, or what time is it, or do you come here often, or is this bar good, or how's your night going, or any of the other default lines you normally use to approach women in kind of a mindless way. Instead, I want you to approach on your own wits. I want to actually read the situation. So when you do this, something interesting is going to happen, and I want you to pay attention to your thought patterns. What thoughts are racing through your head? So. You might be filled with lust over her beauty, or you might worry that she's going to act bitchy or embarrass you, or you might get anxious or scared, or you might have doubts like she's out of your league, or think what you're going to say isn't witty enough. You might second guess yourself or just go completely blank. Wherever your mind wanders is actually fine. You should let it wander. So the whole point of the exercise is just to get to know your ego's thought patterns in high-stress social situations and to gain awareness of this. And you might be able to still approach her. Uh, perhaps you don't even approach her because it's super nerve-wracking. But either way, you're going to be aware of what your ego does to you and oftentimes what it will start to do. And you can, can feel this happen those high stress situations is you can feel your ego literally pulling you back into your head and taking you out of the here and now and doling your sensitivity to what's going on around you. So another exercise for strengthening your ability to read the situation, because I actually think when you let go of ego, we all actually have a natural ability to read the situation and we all kind of know what to do to get a girl. So this is pretty simple. Imagine 
that you're out with a friend or a wing and he asks you how to approach a woman. Now, I'm willing to bet you can tell him exactly what to do, exactly how to approach her. And the reason is, is that your ego isn't involved. And that when your ego isn't involved, it has a tendency to shift your perception outward so you know exactly what to do. So that's an interesting exercise. I don't know if you noticed that early on, that you're able to always give better advice when it wasn't you approaching the girl. Yeah, uh, of course. I think everyone can relate to that. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it really, really shows that we kind of do know what all of us kind of do know what to do. So the next step is, and this is kind of a fun thing, so you can basically advise a friend on, on how to pick up a girl, or you can, you can have an imaginary wingman. You might not want to tell anyone. You can have an imaginary wingman that you're, you're telling them, you're advising them on how to pick up the girl. After you do that, the next step is to, uh, instead of allowing your wing to approach her, you need to approach her since you know exactly what to do. But what's likely to happen is your ego is going to come back into the equation and you're going to second guess yourself and you aren't going to approach her. And this is the hard part. A lot of times, even when we know what to do, we don't trust our intuitions. Uh, we don't trust what the situation tells us to do, but we need to take those risks. So I think there's a way that you can, and this is an exercise for radically, honestly approaching women. So. Simply imagine that you spot it like a really attractive girl and um, ask yourself and be like really honest with yourself. If there was no risk involved, there was zero consequences, would you approach her? I mean, would you approach any girl if there was zero consequences? There was no risk? As a, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what guy went? So the next step is if you answer yes, then you need to approach her. But what normally happens at this point is, once again, the ego is going to come up with a bunch of excuses. It's going to say, like, well, I'll approach her in a little bit, but I'm having a drink with my buds, you know, like maybe in a little bit I'll approach her. Or, you know, it's my she's busy on the phone. Oh, yeah, or... she's on the phone. Or, or maybe should... she's busy. She's like in a hurry going somewhere. Right, right. Or, or, or I should wait. She might have a boyfriend. Let me wait a couple minutes to see if her boyfriend comes back. It just goes on and on. And I think wherever your ego goes is fine. You should let it run um, hog wild. But the one thing that I think really works, and I've actually used this with myself, is to take each excuse that your ego comes up with. And, and you can write this in a journal or you can do it right on the spot. Let your ego run wild with all of his excuses. But preface each one of the excuses with, I'm too much of a prison bitch to approach her. So I'm making the excuse that, you know, dot, 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 that I'm going to wait and finish my drink before I talk to her. And what this does is this does a good job of kind of calling your ego out on his own bullshit. And I'll give you one other way to short circuit the ego by giving your subconscious mind an alternative. So oftentimes what happens when you're scared to approach a girl or whatever, you're not approaching a girl, is the ego starts looping these negative thoughts. And the subconscious mind has a tendency to move away from pain and towards pleasure. So what you really need to do is to give the subconscious mind an alternative. So I don't know, Angel, maybe it's been several years, but can you remember a girl that you didn't want to approach? You thought things were going to go really bad. Uh, like if we go back, I don't know, the 90s, maybe. No, it's probably not that long ago. Um, there was certainly just a couple of years ago, there was an amazing girl. I mean, I did approach her, but I definitely had these nerves. 
about this girl because she just looked so spectacular and she had such a great personality. You could see that she was just bubbling with energy and, and confidence and everything. And she had a whole crowd around her. So there was like a whole bunch of factors. No, that, that's definitely that's an intimidating uh, situation. And, and did you feel that at, at any point, did you feel that if you approached her, it wouldn't go well? Yeah, for sure. That's what was going on in my mind. So if we were to take that, um, you did approach her, which, which is awesome, but oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where the ego is just not allowing you to approach her. It's decided that it's going to go bad. So a question that I like to ask myself is, instead of, is she going to be nice? Is it going to go well? Or is it going to go bad? Is what are the chances? What percentage is she going to be very receptive to me? Is it going to go well? So. When you were kind of nervous to approach her, if you asked yourself before you approached her, what percentage did you think? What were the chances of it going well? If you were to think about that. I probably thought 50-50 at that point. Okay, um, which a 50-50 is kind of high. Now, what do you think the chances were of you making out with her like five minutes later? No, that was, yeah, that, that was, I, I was also in um, Thailand. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, and I wasn't a high-end social club there. It's literally not the kind of thing you see. So I'd put that really, really low. It wasn't, oh, low, it wasn't low, on the low, cards. Low, oh, it wasn't low, in low, my... Low, like 5%, 4%? Yeah, I get like, to tell the truth, I didn't even think of playing it that way. I was just like, uh, I'll okay. spend some time with her, get a number, and then carry things on from there. So if you were just to put, let's, let's take this further, though. But if I was in the States, it would be completely different. Okay, so let's say even in the States, what do you think the percentage of making out with her like five minutes later was? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's not something, but just put a number. number. It's difficult, man. Um, I, uh, if you, if you try 50-50, depending on how the interaction goes, it can be, it's pretty, it can work a lot of the time, yeah. Okay, so you'd put 50% that you could make out with her a couple minutes later. Yeah, if it goes well. Okay. So what do you think if you approach her, what are the percentages of, I don't know, maybe an hour later banging her in uh, the backseat of a car or hotel room? <laughs> <laughs> or bathroom? Um, what you're doing is now getting into, like, that's never been my style. I've done it on a few occasions, but it's not something I have a lot of experience in because I've never, that's just never been what I've kind of wanted out of this. So I'd actually put that as very low just because... I don't have the experience to back it up. And so my mind doesn't think that way. You know what I mean? Okay, so that's fine. What percentage would you put it on? It, does, it, it doesn't matter. What percent? Give me, give me like uh, 5%. You know? 5%. That's okay. The, yeah. So still, still a 5% chance of banging this girl in the bathroom is way higher than playing the lottery, buying a lotto ticket, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And on top of it, it doesn't cost you anything. It's free. Nothing... The only thing that could possibly go wrong is your ego gets bruised. It's not like, I don't know, I've, I've approached thousands and thousands of women. And I think the worst that happened is one time I got punched, but I, I was in the wrong for that. And I've got a couple of drinks in my face, but nothing bad happens. So the question is to give your subconscious mind an alternative. Is it worth the risk, which, which there is no risk of a 5% chance of a Banging her in a bathroom or even a car a half hour after meeting her, is it worth going up and approaching her? And I think it absolutely is, right? Most guys are going to say yeah, it is. So I think if... if uh, I think the, the, the problem is that they don't... You just said that in all your years, which is, is many years now, it's over 15 years, 
The worst that's happened to you is you got punched once and you've had two drinks thrown in your face. Right, right. Well, I'm thinking I, nothing really bad has happened to me ever. The most awkward thing was uh, once uh, a boyfriend came up. Um, yeah, yeah. I know that's happened a few times, but the boyfriend, and most of the time yeah. the boyfriend's just been a bit sulky. And I just said, oh, it's, it's been no big deal. I just said, oh, hi, I didn't know you were a guy and blah, blah, blah. That's it. No big you know, deal. No big no deal. deal. So, so the, the only, it, it, it's kind of funny how people fear, I don't know, murder, being hurt, all of that stuff. But yet what they fear more than that is a bruised ego. You're absolutely right. They're, that's what and they're so I think of. if you can see that the worst that happens is, is you might end up with a, a bruised ego, maybe, but the payoff, a 5% chance is really good. I mean, even in your case. Of something happening in the real world. Yeah. Yeah, of, of banging her in a bathroom and probably for a lot of guys, much higher than a 5% chance of at least the interaction going well, possibly them making out with her even. There's a good chance that that will happen if they're able to take the risk of swallowing their pride, which is no big deal. No one cares. And I oftentimes I think the fear of rejection is worse than the actual rejection. In fact, I don't know about you, but when I was starting off years ago in the early 2000s, I remember whenever I was in a club and I was having a hard time getting warmed up, I would purposely act really obnoxious because as soon as a woman said something rude to me, it was almost like a boxer being clocked in the face. I woke up and I could talk to anyone. You know, that's funny. That's exactly what used to happen to me. Yeah. And sometimes early on in the night, I'd have to get rejection to get started. I know. I know. And it's funny because I initially was scared of rejection. And once it happened, my confidence just went through the roof mm. and I was ready to rock and roll. Do you think other guys can harness rejection that way? Or do you think, is it a certain way you think about it? Or is it just natural? Because I'm, I'm not sure that everyone responds that way. Some people tend to let it push them down rather than respond by getting motivated by driven, more driven by it. I don't think that all guys are the same in how they take rejection. But I think that we're all the same in how we're attached to ego and that the more we kind of train ourselves to detach from ego, yeah. the, the less those, those sort of blows are going to affect you. Yeah. And maybe we can train ourselves to respond the way you said. I think we can. I think with practice, yeah, but some people have a proclivity towards almost like a boxer when they get, when they get socked, they wake up and they can fight. Some guys... When they get rejected, that's really what snaps their game into shape and they're ready to make stuff happen. That's the way I am and, and you are. And I know a couple of people like that, but I know other people who aren't like that. They're kind of devastated when they get rejected. However, I think if those people learn to kind of detach from their ego a bit, um, I don't think the, the blow would affect them yeah. so strongly. I mean, that's... Well, for, for sure, man, this meditation has been life-changing. I came into it later and it's helped me in relationships and... I guess now I'm realizing, now that I'm kind of dating a little bit in LA, I'm realizing it's had an impact elsewhere because I was in relationships for a few years there. So I didn't really know what dating was like anymore. But yeah, I'd say it's had a pretty big impact on casual dating, single lifestyle uh, also. Um, so I guess how long have you been meditating and using these kind of approaches to it? I got into meditation maybe like, uh, God, I'm trying to think. In recent years, I've gotten much more serious about it, uh, and I was obsessive about about it about a year ago. But I've probably been doing it for four or five years, and slowly I got more and more drawn into it. And I just feel, on the whole, besides it making you better with people and with women and, and uh, your personal life, I find in general just your state of well-being is a lot better 
Uh, when you and everything in life is better. <laughs> Can't say that enough. Like meditation isn't easy to get started, but it's definitely, definitely worth it. We're just talking about dating here, but I'd say like it will spill out all over their life. But I love the way you've linked it to as an exercise to you know the, these dating problems because I think most guys don't realize how helpful this can be. It really is. It really is. And, and some people might not initially see what this, how this relates to pickup because. You know, I haven't really given you any pickup lines or techniques, but I can tell you that these type of exercises of learning to control the ego, um, in my humble opinion, will improve your game and your success with women more than anything. And I I think you and I have both tried a lot of shit over the years. Yeah, we've experimented with a lot of stuff. We've experimented with a lot of stuff. And I, I have to say that uh, meditation and meditation is part of it, but learning to control the ego has work for me better than anything. I, I think that's a, that's a really key, key piece. Well, that's, that's really amazing to come from you because you're so well known for some kind of push and pull routines and things like that. I think it's really, really amazing to come on the show and kind of talk about this stuff from a completely different perspective from some guys who've read the game um, and get to probably still visualize Swingcat as this guy who's still back there doing these routines, kind of this approach to it all. So it's great to hear from you in, in particular about how you've changed and, and you're looking at this now. Very cool. Thank you. And, and uh, we can do another, uh, you know, at a certain point, I'd be happy to come on here and do another uh, more technique type interview. But I, I feel that the, the stuff that I talked about is really important and needs to get out there because I think this is the stuff that's going to bring change to guys' lives. And you, you know that because you've been doing this sort of stuff in your own life as well. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And Really, at the end of the day, I mean, techniques, I mean, I'm sure you don't really use many techniques these days because like you don't you don't even think about it. But man, just before you go, we ask the same question of everyone who comes on the show. What would be your top three recommendations to help a guy get results as fast as possible with women? And it can be anything, anything like maybe something we talked about today or absolutely anything from your life and your experience. The first thing, and this is this is going to go back to this course, is I highly recommend meditating for at least 15 minutes a day. Uh, I think that that's pretty uh, crucial. The other is, is there's a guy named Albert Ellis, I think his name is. And I'm trying to remember the name of his autobiography. Uh, you can look it up and put it on your site. But he's the founder of a movement talk called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And he discovered uh, his approach to, to therapy by teaching himself how to overcome his shyness and approach women. And over the course of a summer, he literally forced himself to approach, uh, I think it was like two or 300 women, and it was absolutely torturous for him at first. But I think after the first 50 or 60, it became very easy. And after he did this little experiment that summer, he never had any problems talking to people again. And so I found his autobiography very inspirational for anyone who's going through the process. And then the third recommendation, which I kind of talked talk about, I, I could throw some other recommendations at you, but, but the third one is, is I really recommend picking up Brad Blanton's radical honesty and actually attempting to practice some radical honesty in your own life, because that's, in, besides meditation, that's another thing that will have huge, huge, have a huge impact on your life. And and relationships with women and picking up women and being successful with women. I think that's absolutely huge. Thanks, man. These are really good. And it's, it's very obvious through this whole interview that you read a lot. 
you know, you're definitely uh, pretty well educated. I don't know if you want to, do you spend a certain amount of time reading every week just to give the guys an, an idea of like how, how you get all of these references and everything that you've been talking about? I just kind of obsess over, uh, um, I'm constantly, I read like five books one time. And um, to me, re- I don't really go about it in a methodical method. It's just something interests me and I get drawn into it. So kind of my same, the same approach I have uh, with women is certain women just draw me in and I get more and more uh, curious about it. And they have to make me more and more curious, just like, look, if it doesn't interest me, I have no uh, you know, worries about putting it down and not finishing it. But if it interests me, I'll keep reading. So do you have like a certain methodology you go about uh, reading stuff or... No, I, I, over the years I've tried to, you know, I love to read. And the only thing I've been able to kind of do is I'll say uh, Sunday is study day. I'm not allowed to work. I'm not maybe even, I'm not allowed to like hang out with my girl. Like to my girl, it's study day as well. And it's one day where I just like sit back and I'll take some time to read, listen to audio courses. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I had more to, I should make more time for myself to do that. I mean, lately I really haven't had as much time as I would, uh, like to just you know read books and stuff like that but for me it's recharging and it's i think it's just good for the mind put new ideas inside you. oh man yeah it's, it's really important really important to study the other one is like just since i've been in la because there's so much driving involved i'm listening to audiobooks and podcasts all the time and i'm, I'm learning way more than usual just because of the you're always on 20 minute like little journeys here um so you've got some time to kill that way so it's pretty useful living in la which i'm sure most people do here that's definitely being effective with your time too yeah, yeah yeah man thanks so much for coming on the show um it's been a long episode and you like got so much information i'm sure the guys will really appreciate it so thanks for your time today yeah absolutely take control of your dating life today take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today don't wait do it today that's all it takes to change your life step by step episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.